0: Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 2, Romans chapter 2, that's page 940 in the Bibles, uh, in the pew in front of you or on a chair next to you. We've been uh, working our way through this letter to the Romans, and uh, we've titled our series, sermon series in Romans, um, Good News of God's Grace, to try to capture something of uh, what the theme of this book is. And this letter really is packed with good news. It's full of gospel. Paul does, uh, you, you could call it a deep dive on the grace of God toward us in Jesus Christ. And uh, we've said this already, that, that Romans has the power to really transform who we are, how we think about God, how we think about ourselves, um, what it means to be a Christian But if you've been with us as we've walked through chapter 1 and the first half of chapter 2, maybe you've noticed there hasn't been a lot of good news. Uh, In fact, the message so far has been bad news. God is holy and just. The God who created us is holy and just. And uh, we are sinners who have rebelled against Him. And we've thumbed our noses at Him. We've lived in rebellion, and we're sinners. And because God is good, because He's holy, because He's just, He must judge us. And Paul has talked about a coming judgment day. And we saw last week, he said that our lives will be scrutinized before God's judgment seat, and His judgment will be impartial. It will be inescapable and as we've heard all this, you might be wondering, well, what about that good news? Where is that good news? See, here's the thing. The the good news it really doesn't sound good until you come face to face with the bad news. You know, imagine going to see your doctor for a routine checkup and after he, you know, listens to your heart, uh, shines that bright light in your eyes, checks your ears. Uh, he says, "You know, good news. Um, after three rounds of chemo, you should be okay." And you're thinking, "What? <laughs> I just came here for my annual physical. What are you talking about? Chemo? That's not good news." And then he says, "Oh, I, I guess I forgot to tell you. You've got some aggressive cancer that needs to be dealt with." You see, the the reason the good news in of God's grace in Jesus Christ is so good is really because the truth about us is so bad. We are sinners under the judgment of God. And and Paul, he knows there are different kinds of sinners. Two, really. And in in chapter 1, he he talks about the immoral sinners, the the Gentiles, who who live wild, rebellious, self-centered, um immoral lives but paul also knows there's another kind of sinner the the moral sinner and we saw last week that that he addresses them the the self-righteous critic or we could say the judge who who always condemns others for their faults and and paul said last week these critical moralizers have no excuse before god because they do the very things that they condemn in others, they too are are guilty before God. And in the passage we're we're looking at today, Paul Paul continues to press this point. He continues to speak to to moral types, to uh, specifically the Jewish people, the most uh, at that time, the most religiously devout people um, in the world, his, his own people. And see, you remember, Paul was a a Pharisee at one point, and he knows the mindset. You know, uh, sure, those people out there—they're sinners. Those Gentiles that Paul talked about—they're—they're they're wicked. God will judge them, of course, He will. But but we're the chosen people. We're we're the ones who have a, a leg up with God, and, and He's going to show us favor, not judgment. And so Paul takes what he said last week, God's judgment impartial, God's judgment is according to deeds, and he applies it directly to the Jewish people. And he wants to make clear that, that Jews as well as Gentiles are transgressors. All are under God's judgment. And, and he's going to show us that Jewish privilege, the advantages that, that came to the Jews because of God's covenant with them, uh, are really no advantage over the Gentiles at the final judgment. And so you might be thinking, well, I guess I don't need to pay attention today. I'm not Jewish, or uh, I'm, this is just some historical debate that Paul had to engage in. What, what does it mean for me? Well, keep in mind, Paul is speaking to religious people. Paul is speaking to people like us, uh, church people. And you know, the, the longer you've been a Christian, you, you've probably noticed this in your own life, the longer you've been a Christian, the easier it is to forget that you need Jesus just as much as everyone else does. You know, the longer you've been a part of the church and, and going along with, with all that's involved in uh, being a Christian and being a church member, you, you forget that I have nothing to recommend myself to God. Just like everyone else. And over time, you know, we can become prideful, self-confident, um, like the very person Paul addresses in this passage. And so I want us to hear what Paul says today um, as a message for us, just as much as it was for the Jewish people. As a, as a church, we need to hear what Paul says to church people. And so let me, let me read our passage for us. Uh, We're going to look at Romans chapter 2, beginning in verse 17, all the way through uh, chapter 3, verse 8. It's a a bit of a longer passage. I'm going to read it for us, and then I'll pray. Paul says, But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know His will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So, if a a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, Will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter." His praise is not from man, but from God. Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words." And prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means, for then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. Let me pray for us. We, we do ask, Lord, that you would speak to us, that you would give us ears to hear your word today. Would you give us hearts that are receptive to the, the message of Romans 2 here that we're looking at? Lord, would you work in our hearts and lives today? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Not an easy passage, as you could tell from the reading through it. Here in this passage, Paul uh, warns church people of three dangers. And I want to look at each of them with you. He he warns of three dangers. Um, Hypocrisy, number one. Presumption, number two and playing theological games, number three. So hypocrisy, presumption, playing theological games. Uh, the first danger, hypocrisy. You see it there in verses 17 to 24. And you've got to remember from last week, Paul's engaging an imaginary conversation partner. He's had this dialogue going on back and forth. And here the conversation partner is a, a Jewish person, a, a devout religious Jew, a representative really of the, the nation of Israel. And, and Paul's goal here is to undermine Jewish self confidence. So, you know, maybe you could imagine as Paul's been, uh, as Paul was indicting the, the Gentiles in chapter one, that this, uh, this person, this man is hearing what Paul has to say and is, you know, kind of waving the flag of his Jewishness. And Paul says, okay. Well, let's talk about that. Let's talk about uh, your your Jewish privilege. And he he begins. You 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 heard it uh, with a, a long list of what it means to be Jewish, uh, in verses seventeen and eighteen. Five aspects of of Jewish privilege. He says, "You call yourself a Jew." In other words, the the name of God's people. I I belong to the chosen people. I belong to the covenant people. He says, you rely on the law. They, they trusted that, that the possession of Torah, this gift of Torah God had given them, would protect them from disaster. Paul says, you, you boast in God. And, and often we think of boasting as a negative thing, but this is a good thing here. They boast that they worship the one true God, not, not the false gods of the nations. And then he says, you, you know his will. Know God's will. Um, they they know how God wants them to live because He's given them Torah. And then Paul also says, you you approve what ex, what is excellent. These are knowledgeable people. These are people who can make uh, distinctions between what is good and evil. They can use moral insight and discernment. And, and Paul summarizes it all by saying, because you are instructed from the law. And so, you know Paul's conversation partner here is is proud of the fact that he belongs to the people to whom God has given Torah it makes him knowledgeable and and wise and discerning and and then Paul goes on in 19 and 20 to talk about Israel's vocation in the world you see Israel's privileges those things Paul has just listed uh are the basis for israel 's responsibility in the world? You, you see the list there. This is how Israel understood itself a, a guide to the blind, light to those who are in darkness that is the Gentile nations who, who don 't have Torah, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children and then Paul summarizes having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth and and, you know, we hear this list and we might think, oh, this, this person's just so inflated. But everything Paul has said here is, is good and true. I mean, because of God's covenant with them, the Jewish people did have certain privileges. They did have God's law, God's truth. Uh, because of those privileges, they did have a responsibility to the world to be a light to the nations. I mean, that's what Isaiah says. Isaiah 42, 49. The problem here, and this is what Paul is is seeking to undermine, the problem is God's gifts became a source of pride for Israel. God's gifts to His people became a a basis for self-confidence. And so, as Paul's run through this list, again, you can imagine his dialogue partner you know, nodding his head and saying, yes, Paul, I, I, I am those things. Yes, Paul, you're right. I mean, Israel truly is the world's teacher. And it's a, it's a setup. <laughs> it seems like Paul loves to do this, at least in the book of Romans. It, it's a setup. He, he, and then he drops the hammer in verse 21. He asks a, a series of rhetorical questions and very uncomfortable questions. And the, the first really summarizes the rest. He says, You then who teach others, you know, you boast in having the law, you boast in your role as an instructor of the foolish and a, a guide to the blind. You who teach others, do you not teach yourself? In other words, you know, our saying for this is, do you practice what you preach? Do you practice what you preach? And, and of course, the answer Paul expects here is, is no. No. They, they don't practice what they preach. They're hypocrites. They're hypocrites. That's the indictment Paul is leveling against his conversation partner. And Paul's not content to just leave it like that. He sort of twists the knife As he goes on with these other questions, uh, you preach against stealing, do you steal? You say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? And then uh, the question that seems a little odd to us, you who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Uh, Plundering temples was very common in the ancient world, there's valuable items inside them, and uh, apparently some Jews, not, not many, but some Jews argued that since idols are not true gods, they have no real existence, it, it was okay to profit from the sale of items taken from Gentile temples. And so Paul levels these, these charges. He, he asks these questions not because every single Jewish person was guilty of all these different sins. I mean, he, he's really using extreme cases here. Um, he's indicting Israel as a whole. He's saying, You are God's people, and yet these grotesque, abominable sins are present among you. He's saying these examples, they highlight the, the hypocrisy that characterized God's people at the time. And he says in verse 23 you know, despite Israel's boast in the Torah, they, they are lawbreakers. They boast in having this gift from God, and yet they break the very law that they boast in and thereby dishonor God. And then the result of Israel's hypocrisy, verse 24, Paul says, their hypocrisy exposes God to public ridicule. Look at what he says. He's, he's quoting Isaiah 52. He says, For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles, Because of you, I mean, hypocrisy is is ugly enough in itself. But what's worse, and this is what Paul's really focusing on, it dishonors God's name. You see, the the, he's saying the world looks at Israel's hypocritical behavior and it despises the God Israel represents. You know, hypocrisy. You've probably noticed this. It's just it's so common. In the human experience, uh, it's been said that it, hypocrisy is one of our our fundamental character traits as sinners. And you know, at at its root, hypocrisy is deceptive, isn't it? I mean, it certainly deceives the the person guilty of it. You know, after play acting for so long, they begin to believe that the the mask that they wear is reality. That it must be true of them, and, and you know, the heart becomes. Harder and harder, more resistant to critique. It's a very dangerous place to be. Um, Hypocrisy deceives others too, doesn't it? I mean, it, it leads them to trust someone who's actually a fraud. But worst of all, Paul says, hypocrisy lies about God. It lies about God. When we play the hypocrite, when we as God's people Play the hypocrite. We misrepresent him. You know you know how it is. Eventually hypocrisy gets exposed, right? I, I think of that song. I only know the Johnny Cash version, but you, know, you can run on for a long time. You can run on for a long time. Sooner or later, God's going to cut you down. I think Elvis did the song too. I don't know who wrote it. But eventually, the hypocrisy gets exposed. The charade can only last so long. And, and when the truth comes out, the, the people we've deceived conclude that our God must be just like us. He's, he's just as dishonest. He's just as untrustworthy. He's just as manipulative. And so on. I mean, how else do you explain His followers? How else do you explain... His people, and, and they simply don't want anything to do with a God whose whose gospel, whose truth, whose word creates such hypocrites. And you know, we need to realize that what what Paul says here about the nations blaspheming God, um, it it's not just an Israel thing. Uh, we could point the finger, you know, at Israel just as the prophets do, and say, you know. Because of your wickedness, you, you, you ruined God's reputation in the world, but often the same is true of, of the church. And, and we don't like to talk about that, but it's often true of the church. Um, you know, many of you have probably seen the reports about the younger generations leaving the church, um, and it, it's an alarming trend And, you know, young adults who grew up with Christian parents, who who grew up in in Bible-believing, Gospel-preaching churches, um, now they want nothing to do with Christianity. They're they're leaving the church. And, and, you know, the Christian community is trying to figure out, why is this? What is going on? I mean, um, why are are our kids running? And, you know, I see a lot of finger-pointing in the Christian community. You know, it's the public education system. They're destroying young people's faith. Or it's it's progressive Christianity. You know, they, they've corrupted the faith and they're they're leading people astray. And and no doubt there's some truth there. But but what I don't hear the Christian community talking about the elephant in the room, and that elephant is the church's hypocrisy. You know, maybe more than anything else, it's our own hypocrisy that is driving the younger generations out. You know, just some examples. Uh, We Christians, you know, we say we're all about loving Jesus and loving neighbor. You know, it's just that's the Christian way. And, And then we murder our neighbors with our words on social media just because we don't like, you know, their political position or something. Um, you've, you've got Christian denominations write up statements denouncing the culture's sexual sins. And they say, we're, we're taking a stand for truth. We are preserving traditional biblical values. And, and all the while, they're covering up sexual abuse of women and children that their own pastors are doing. Um, in the early 2000s, the, the man who was president of the National Association of Evangelicals Uh, He was a very vocal opponent of legalizing same-sex marriage. He had a national platform, very influential. And then it turns out he was in a three-year relationship with a male prostitute. The young people in the pews are not fooled. And those are just some examples. I mean, the last two years, how many Christian leaders proved themselves to be frauds? The young people aren't fooled, and they don't want anything to do with the God that hypocrites represent. And so we can, you know point the finger all day long at those people out there. <laughs> but if we want this trend to change, it's got to start with us. It's got to start with honesty you know owning up to our sins and failures both as as churches and as individuals we've got to stop pretending that that we've got the moral high ground you know let's commit to spending more time repenting of our own sins than denouncing the sins of the culture you know if you really want to get somebody's attention confess to them when you've you've proven to be the hypocrite before them Admit that you know it was wrong what you did, and that you're, you you uh, you really don't want to live like that. But you're a sinner, and you need God's grace just as much as everyone else. That'll get their attention. Not our self-righteous denunciations. So the the first danger, don't you love Paul? Are <laughs> the first danger Paul warns about the danger of hypocrisy. He goes on. He's not done yet. (laughs) He goes on, second danger, uh, presumption. Presumption, verses 25 to 29. Uh, Paul takes up this issue of circumcision. And maybe when I was doing the reading, you thought, man, that is so weird. Why is Paul talking about that? What does that have to do with religious self-confidence? But you've got to remember, um, circumcision was the sign and seal of God's covenant with Abraham, right? Right? Every Israelite male was circumcised at eight days old. It, it was a badge of belonging. You know, circumcision identified who belonged to the covenant community. It was a, a mark of membership. You know, when uh, sporting teams compete, the, the two teams wear different uniforms, right? And it's so that you can distinguish between the players who belong to the home team and the players who belong to the visiting team. And, and likewise with circumcision... If you want to know who belongs to the people of God, circumcision. It distinguishes between the insiders and the outsiders. And and this sign, you know, it was so important to the Jewish people that they even uh, came up with labels. They referred to themselves, and this is going to strike us as strange, but they referred to themselves as the circumcision. And everyone else, those those dirty Gentiles out there, they're the uncircumcision. It's a very uh, pejorative label. So, so Paul takes this this precious sign that that every Jew held um, in esteem, and and he says, "Look, let's talk about it." You know, many Jews in the first century presumed that. That they truly belong to God's people. They were truly a member of God's people simply because they possessed the covenant sign. And, and Paul pulls the rug out from under them. I mean, he, he verses 25 and 26, he just, he relativizes circumcision. They, they boast in it and he says, well, look, verse 25 um, circumcision is just an empty sign without obedience to God's law. He says, it's in, circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. See, God never intended for the, the sign of covenant membership to be divorced from a life of covenant obedience. And Paul says, your, your law-breaking negates your circumcision. It puts you in the same position as those dirty Gentiles Whom you condemn. It shows you're not truly a member of God's people. And then, verse 26, he says, really, the the reverse is also true. An uncircumcised Gentile who obeys God's commands, Paul says, will be reckoned to have the physical sign of circumcision. In other words, uh, these obedient Gentiles, they don't have the mark, the physical mark, but God regards them as authentic members of his people. And we'll see later. You might be wondering who are these obedient Gentiles? We'll see later Paul's talking about Gentile Christians, those who have faith in Jesus Christ, those who are being transformed by the Holy Spirit into faithful covenant members. And so Paul just kind of, you know, shakes the very foundation of, of Jewish self-confidence here. in verse 27, Paul says, "What's more, you know, at, at the final judgment, Uh, these uncircumcised but obedient Gentiles, they're going to stand as witnesses against those who were Jews in name only. And then here's the the point Paul's really driving at, verses 28 and 29. What he's getting at is this. the, The true Jew, the true people of God are not defined by an external, physical mark in the flesh. Look at what he says. He says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. He's saying true circumcision, it's it's internal, not external. It deals with with the heart, with the... The, the core of who we are, not the flesh. It's the, the work of God's Holy Spirit inside a person, not the, the written Torah. And, and Paul here, as, as shocking as what he says is, and his you know, conversation partner, jaw's probably you know, hanging down to the floor at the, at the moment. As shocking as all it is, he's not saying anything new. He's just echoing really what the Old Testament said. Uh, Deuteronomy 10, you know, Moses uh, appeals to the people: circumcise your hearts. And then later in Deuteronomy, God promises He'll do it to them Himself, so that they love and obey Him. Uh, the The promises of the new covenant that God will give His people a new heart, and as a result, they'll they'll gladly obey Him from the heart. Uh, that's what Ezekiel was talking about in the reading earlier. Paul says this is what makes someone. A true member of God's people, not, not just the sign. You know, presumption, the danger of presumption is, is right up there with hypocrisy. Uh, it's another trap that, that church people often fall into. You know, putting our confidence in some external mark, you know, it's, it's something that can be seen, it's something really that's achievable. What's more, it's something that other people can see and applaud. Um, we're constantly tempted to put to presume that because of these external things, we must be okay. And it, it could be any number of things. I mean, you you walk down an aisle at an evangelistic meeting, or or you were baptized. Um, you, you grew up in a Christian family, you, you read the Bible, you know the Bible, you love the Bible, you're a member of a church, you, you take communion, you know, whatever it might be. And none of those things are necessarily bad, but, but if that's what makes you think that you're right with God, Paul says you, you're going to be really surprised on the, on the Day of Judgment. You know, Christianity is, is not about mere externals. It's not about just putting on the Christian uniform, the, the mark of a true Christian. It's, it's a heart transformed by the work of the Holy Spirit through faith in Christ. And, and apart from that inner transformation, you know, all those external signs are, are meaningless. Apart from a heart transformed. Those signs, even the good ones, baptism, church membership, they're meaningless. They they can't make you right with God. And I think Paul would say, don't don't make the mistake of confusing the sign with the reality. He says in Galatians 5, in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. So the second danger, presumption, there's a third danger, Paul goes on to talk about in chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, the danger of playing theological games. And so, uh, Paul, um, you know, his dialogue partner hears everything Paul's just said about uh, what it means to be a true Jew, what true circumcision is, and, and immediately there's objections. Immediately, uh, want the, the conversation partner wants to argue, you know, and you know how it is when somebody's shining the light on your own hypocrisy, your own false confidences, um, it's uncomfortable. And, and Paul's uh, conversation partner wants to get out from that spotlight and really resorts to uh, some convoluted reasoning here. And, uh, Paul only deals with these arguments um, in, in brief here. He goes into more detail in chapter 9. I'm going to try to move through them quickly. But three objections, three theological games that that this uh, self-righteous Jewish person plays. And the first has to do with God's covenant. In verses 1 and 2, he asks, then what advantage has the Jew or what is the value of circumcision? So so here's what's behind that question. You know, God chose us to be His special people. He made a covenant with us. He promised us His favor. And if Paul, if you're telling me that, that Torah and circumcision are aren't going to exempt us from God's judgment I mean what is the benefit of Jewishness? It, it kind of feels like God has done a bait and switch with us and you know he asks that question what's the advantage what's the benefit and we'd expect after everything Paul said, well, there is no advantage, but he actually says there's much advantage, but not the kind they assumed the The privilege of Jewishness wasn't about protection from judgment it was really about responsibility. It was about vocation. Paul says in verse 2, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. It's what he was talking about earlier. God entrusted his word to Israel. They were custodians of his word and all for the purpose of sharing it with the world. Privilege entailed responsibility. The the second objection that that gets raised is about God's faithfulness. You know, if, uh, you know, let's just blame shift. You know, normal human tactic. Let's just blame God for all this. Uh, verses three and four. You know, the the Jewish man wants to know: Does Israel's faithlessness in that task to be a light to the world? Does that nullify God's faithfulness? In other words um doesn't god judging faithless israel mean he's he's gone back on his promises i thought he promised to bless us and save us i mean how could he judge us sounds to me like he's breaking his covenant and and paul <laughs> you know his response this is the first time we hear this response we're going to hear it a lot more in Romans by no means verse 4 by no means i mean paul won't even entertain entertain the thought that god could be faithless to his promises he says let god be true or in other words faithful though everyone were a liar you know, God's faithfulness, His reliability, that's just a, a fundamental axiom of biblical faith. God keeps His promises, always keeps His promises. The issue here is Israel's selective attention to God's promises. You know, they, they focused on the ones they liked, the promises of blessing, but they ignored or downplayed the promises of, of judgment for disobedience. And, and Paul's saying here, look, God is faithful to all His promises, not just the ones we like. And God's faithfulness to His people doesn't preclude judging them for their sins. And he he quotes there in verse 4, he quotes Psalm 51 to confirm his point. You know Psalm 51, David's confession of, of wrongdoing. And David acknowledges that God is in the right when he punishes his people's sins. And so, the first objection about God's covenant, the second objection about God's faithfulness, there's an, another uh, objection, and it has to do with God's righteousness, verses uh, 5 through 8. And this is where the, the reasoning really starts to get twisted here. Verse 5. But if our unrighteousness, if the Jewish people's unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict His wrath on us. Um, Let me paraphrase this for you. You know, we've broken God's law, we've failed in our vocation, but our sins have given God an opportunity to demonstrate His impartial justice. You know, He gets to show the world that He's righteous. And so, wouldn't it really be unfair for God to punish us? For something that made him look good? I mean, it's kind of like we've done God a favor. Uh, it's ridiculous. The, the reasoning is ridiculous. And so Paul says, verse 6, by no means, may it never be. Um, for then, how could God judge the world? So, so both Paul and his critic agree that God is a just judge. And therefore, he must exonerate the innocent and condemn the guilty. And so, the point is, if, if he refuses to judge Israel's disobedience, he has no grounds to judge the rest of the world. And, and then, it's like this critic gets even more desperate um, and basically goes on to argue that the ends justify the means. Uh, verses 7 and 8, you know, basically, if my sin results in a good outcome... Um, in this case, a display of God's righteous character, um, then really God should be pleased with me. He shouldn't consider me a sinner. He should consider me one of his servants. I'm serving his glory. My sin's promoting his his good name. And maybe, the the subjector says, maybe we should even go on doing more evil so that more good will come. And if you know Romans, Paul takes up... uh, a similar line of reasoning later, you know, maybe we should just go on sinning so that God can give us more grace. And I love, Paul doesn't even really dignify this objection with, with an answer. He just simply says, you know, whatever, uh, whoever promotes such wicked, twisted thinking, uh, they justly deserve God's judgment. Let's just throw away that objection. It's not even worth um, exploring. And so, Paul, you know, he, he speaks to church people here in Romans 2 about the dangers of hypocrisy and presumption and, and just playing theological games to escape the reality of our, our sin and guilt. And, and maybe you've heard all this, and um, I've thought like this a number of times this week as I've been wrestling with the passage. You know, enough already, Paul. <laughs> Leave me alone. You've made your point. And actually, he's not even done yet. (laughs) He goes on in the remainder of chapter 3 to just press this point about our our sinful status before God. And, um, you know, we might think this Paul guy, you know, he just enjoys making people feel miserable. I mean, he is such a crank. He is just, um, what's his problem? (laughs) See, that's not true. Paul doesn't enjoy making people feel miserable. See, Paul knows that that religious people are the the toughest nuts to crack. I mean, he was one, a self-righteous Pharisee. It's true of his imaginary Jewish opponents. It's true of his uh, fellow Jews. And it's often true of Christians too, church people. That's why Paul, you know, it's interesting, Paul spends about a half a chapter indicting, you know, immoral Gentiles, people outside of the covenant community, and he spends almost two whole chapters uh, on religious people. Religious people are the toughest nuts to crack. You know, we have privileges, don't we? I mean, even as as Christians, uh, we could say with, with Paul's opponent, I mean, we've got lots of privilege. I mean, we have the gift of God's Word. We We sit under the preaching of it week by week. We're taught it. We read it. We know it. Um, It shapes how we think. It shapes what we believe. Um, uh, Many grow up in Christian families, despite what I said earlier about the hypocrisy that's so rampant in the church. For many people, growing up in a Christian family was a a tremendous blessing, tremendous blessing. Belonging to a church with with sound doctrine and and reverent worship, being surrounded by by God's people, and we sing and pray and read God's Word and celebrate the Lord's Supper every week. All uh, tremendous blessings, amazing privileges, but they can be really dangerous. We can think that, well, we've got all these things, got all these privileges, and so we must be okay. We must be okay with God. As long as the outside looks good, the inside must be fine. And there's this, this reality that the, the privileges of being named among God's people can, can sometimes inoculate us to our need for repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. We, we can feel superior to those people out there. You know, we're not like them. We've got a biblical worldview. Self-confidence. That's, that's the danger, right, for church people like us. And so Paul's not just interested in making us miserable. He's stripping away every self-confidence that we put our trust in. You know, any confidence in in who we are, what we have, or or what we do, as if any of those things could make us right before God. Paul's saying, let's let's just sweep all that away because it's not a ground of confidence. You know, he's he's said here to his Jewish critic, God sought an obedient Israelite who would be a light to the world, and you are not it. And that's what Paul is saying to us. You are not it. We've made a mess of things. Even though we're church people, we are just as guilty, just as deserving of God's judgment as everyone else. But the good news that Paul does not get to in this passage, but he will get to eventually, is that Jesus is that faithful Israelite. That... He is the one who offered faithful obedience, the faithful obedience that we should have offered. And he took upon himself at the cross the, the divine judgment that we deserved for, for our hypocrisy, for our presumption, for our games we play with God's truth. Paul wants us to see that all are sinners, all are sinners. He, he feels like it's not, nece- it's not enough to just say it once. He has to say it chapter after chapter. All are sinners, even church people. But God's grace is freely available to all people through Jesus Christ. Even to church people like us. Even to church people like us. That, that's our confidence. You know, we, we sang earlier about the rock of ages. This is where we stand, on, on Jesus' blood and righteousness. Not, not privilege, not, not, our, uh, not what we do for God, but Jesus Christ and Him alone. We, we bank all of our hopes and trust on Him. Let, let me pray for us. Our God and Father, we recognize that maybe more often than we'd like to admit that we take up that role of self-righteous, religious person, thinking that um, because we go to church, because we um, aren't involved in the same kinds of sins that others are, that we're we're somehow exempt from your searching gaze, your searching judgment. Lord, would you humble us? Would You help us to see ourselves rightly? Would You help us to grow in a a humble awareness of our own sinfulness and that that would cause us all the more to trust in Jesus Christ, to stand on the, the truth of the Gospel? Would You help us, Lord, not to make these mistakes that Paul's warning about? Would You help us not to be hypocrites, but but humble believers, aware of our own sin, but also rejoicing in the grace of Jesus Christ. It's in His name we pray. Amen.